section thirteen of volume one c of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume Volume 1C, Section 13, Chapter 28, Part 2 The French Monarch having succeeded so well in this negotiation began to enlarge his views and to hope for more considerable advantages by practising on the vanity and self-conceit of the favourite he redoubled his flatteries to the cardinal consulted him more frequently in every doubt or difficulty called him in each letter father tutor governor and professed the most unbounded deference to his advice and opinion. All these caresses were preparatives to a negotiation for the delivery of Calais, in consideration of a sum of money to be paid for it, and, if we may credit Polydor Virgil, who bears a particular ill-will to Wolsey on account of his being dispossessed of his employment and thrown into prison by that minister, so extraordinary a proposal met with a favourable reception from the cardinal he ventured not however to lay the matter before the council he was content to sound privately the opinion of the other ministers by dropping hints in conversation as if he thought calais a useless burden to the kingdom but when he found that all men were strongly riveted in a contrary persuasion he thought it dangerous to proceed any further in his purpose and as he fell soon after into new connections with the king of spain the great friendship between francis and him began gradually to decline the pride of wolsey was now further increased by a great accession of power and dignity cardinal campeggio had been sent as legate into england in order to procure a tithe from the clergy for enabling the pope to oppose the progress of the turks a danger which was become real and was formidable to all christendom but on which the politics of the court of rome had built so many interested projects that it had lost all influence on the minds of men the clergy refused to comply with leo's demands campeggio was recalled and the king desired of the pope that wolsey who had been joined in this commission might alone be invested with the legatine power together with the right of visiting all the clergy and monasteries and even with suspending all the laws of the church during a twelvemonth wolsey having obtained this new dignity made a new display of that state and parade to which he was so much addicted on solemn feast days he was not content without saying mass after the manner of the pope himself 
not only he had bishops and abbots to serve him he even engaged the first nobility to give him water and the towel he affected a rank superior to what had ever been claimed by any churchman in england warham the primate having written him a letter in which he subscribed himself your loving brother wolsey complained of his presumption in thus challenging an equality with him when warham was told what offence he had given he made light of the matter know ye not said he that this man is drunk with too much prosperity but wolsey carried the matter much further than vain pomp and ostentation he erected an office which he called the legatine court and as he was now by means of the pope's commission and the king's favour invested with all power both ecclesiastical and civil no man knew what bounds were to be set to the authority of his new tribunal he conferred on it a kind of inquisitorial and censorial powers even over the laity and directed it to inquire into all matters of conscience into all conduct which had given scandal into all actions which though they escaped the law might appear contrary to good morals offence was taken at this commission which was really unbounded and the people were the more disgusted when they saw a man who indulged himself in pomp and pleasure so severe in repressing the least appearance of licentiousness in others but to render his court more obnoxious wolsey made one john allen judge in it a person of scandalous life whom he himself as chancellor had it is said condemned for perjury and as it is pretended that this man either extorted fines from every one whom he was pleased to find guilty or took bribes to drop prosecutions men concluded and with some appearance of reason that he shared with the cardinal those wages of iniquity the clergy and in particular the monks were exposed to this tyranny and as the libertinism of their lives often gave a just handle against them they were obliged to purchase an indemnity by paying large sums of money to the legate or his judge not content with this authority wolsey pretended by virtue of his commission to assume the jurisdiction of all the bishops courts particularly that of judging of wills and testaments and his decisions in those important points were deemed not a little arbitrary as if he himself were pope and as if the pope could absolutely dispose of every ecclesiastical preferment he presented to whatever priories or benefices he pleased without regard to the right of election in the monks or of patronage in the nobility and gentry no one durst carry to the king any complaint against these usurpations of wolsey till warham ventured to inform him of the discontents of his people henry professed his ignorance of the whole matter a man said he is not so blind anywhere as in his own house 
but do you father added he to the primate go to walsey and tell him if anything be amiss that he amend it a reproof of this kind was not likely to be effectual it only served to augment wolsey's enmity to warham but one london having prosecuted allen the legate's judge in a court of law and having convicted him of malversation and iniquity the clamour at last reached the king's ears and he expressed such displeasure to the cardinal as made him ever after more cautious in exerting his authority while henry indulging himself in pleasure and amusement entrusted the government of his kingdom to this imperious minister an incident happened abroad which excited his attention maximilian the emperor died a man who of himself was indeed of little consequence but as his death left vacant the first station among christian princes it set the passions of men in agitation and proved a kind of era in the general system of europe the kings of france and spain immediately declared themselves candidates for the imperial crown and employed every expedient of money or intrigue which promised them success in so great a point of ambition henry also was encouraged to advance his pretensions but his minister pace who was dispatched to the electors found that he began to solicit too late and that the votes of all these princes were already pre-engaged either on one side or the other francis and charles made profession from the beginning of carrying on this rivalship with emulation but without enmity this whole narrative has been copied by all the historians from the author here cited there are many circumstances however very suspicious both because of the obvious partiality of the historian and because the parliament when they afterwards examined wolsey's conduct could find no proof of any material offence he had ever committed and francis in particular declared that his brother charles and he were fairly and openly suitors to the same mistress the more fortunate added he will carry her the other must rest contented but all men apprehended that this extreme moderation however reasonable would not be of long duration and that incidents would certainly occur to sharpen the minds of the candidates against each other it was charles who at length prevailed to the great disgust of the french monarch who still continued to the last in the belief that the majority of the electoral college was engaged in his favour and as he was some years superior in age to his rival and after his victory at marignan and conquest of the milanese much superior in renown he could not suppress his indignation at being thus in the face of the world after long and anxious expectation disappointed in so important a pretension from this competition as much as from opposition of interests 
arose that emulation between those two great monarchs which while it kept their whole age in movement sets them in so remarkable a contrast to each other both of them princes endowed with talents and abilities brave aspiring active warlike beloved by their servants and subjects dreaded by their enemies and respected by all the world francis open frank liberal munificent carrying these virtues to an excess which prejudiced his affairs charles political close artful frugal better qualified to obtain success in wars and in negotiations especially the latter the one the more amiable man the other the greater monarch the king from his oversights and indiscretions naturally exposed to misfortunes but qualified by his spirit and magnanimity to extricate himself from them with honour the emperor by his designing interested character fitted in his greatest successes to excite jealousy and opposition even among his allies and to rouse up a multitude of enemies in the place of one whom he had subdued and as the personal qualities of these princes thus counterpoised each other so did the advantages and disadvantages of their dominions fortune alone without the concurrence of prudence or valour never reared up of a sudden so great a power as that which centred in the emperor charles he reaped the succession of castile of aragon of austria of the netherlands he inherited the conquest of naples of grenada election entitled him to the empire even the bounds of the globe seemed to be enlarged a little before his time that he might possess the whole treasure as yet entire and unrifled of the new world but though the concurrence of all these advantages formed an empire greater and more extensive than any known in europe since that of the romans the kingdom of france alone being close compact united rich populous and being interposed between the provinces of the emperor's dominions was able to make a vigorous opposition to his progress and maintain the contest against him henry possessed the felicity of being able both by the native force of his kingdom and its situation to hold the balance between those two powers and had he known to improve by policy and prudence this singular and inestimable advantage he was really by means of it a greater potentate than either of those mighty monarchs who seemed to strive for the dominion of europe but this prince was in his character heedless inconsiderate capricious impolitic guided by his passions or his favourite vain imperious haughty sometimes actuated by friendship for foreign powers oftener by resentment seldom by his true interest and thus 
though he exulted in that superiority which his situation in europe gave him he never employed it to his own essential and durable advantage or to that of his kingdom francis was well acquainted with henry's character and endeavoured to accommodate his conduct to it he solicited an interview near calais in expectation of being able by familiar conversation to gain upon his friendship and confidence wolsey earnestly seconded this proposal and hoped in the presence of both courts to make parade of his riches his splendour and his influence over both monarchs and as henry himself loved show and magnificence and had entertained a curiosity of being personally acquainted with the french king he cheerfully adjusted all the preliminaries of this interview the nobility of both nations vied with each other in pomp and expense many of them involved themselves in great debts and were not able by the penury of their whole lives to repair the vain splendour of a few days the duke of buckingham who though very rich was somewhat addicted to frugality finding his preparations for this festival amount to immense sums threw out some expressions of displeasure against the cardinal whom he believed the author of that measure an imprudence which was not forgotten by this minister while henry was preparing to depart for calais he heard that the emperor was arrived at dover and he immediately hastened thither with the queen in order to give a suitable reception to his royal guest that great prince politic though young being informed of the intended interview between francis and henry was apprehensive of the consequences and was resolved to take the opportunity in his passage from spain to the low countries to make the king still a higher compliment by paying him a visit in his own dominions besides the marks of regard and attachment which he gave to henry he strove by every testimony of friendship by flattery protestations promises and presents to gain on the vanity the avarice and the ambition of the cardinal he here instilled into this aspiring prelate the hope of attaining the papacy and as that was the sole point of elevation beyond his present greatness it was sure to attract his wishes with the same ardour as if fortune had never yet favoured him with any of her presence in confidence of reaching this dignity by the emperor's assistance he secretly devoted himself to that monarch's interests and charles was perhaps the more liberal of his promises because leo was a very young man and it was not likely that for many years he should be called upon to fulfil his engagements henry easily observed this courtship paid to his minister but instead of taking umbrage at it he only made it a subject of vanity and believed that as his favour was wolsey's sole support the obeisance of such mighty monarchs to his servant was in reality a more conspicuous homage to his own grandeur 
the day of charles's departure henry went over to calais with the queen and his whole court and thence proceeded to Guisnes, a small town near the frontiers francis attended in like manner came to ardres a few miles distant and the two monarchs met for the first time in the fields at a place situated between these two towns but still within the english pale for francis agreed to pay this compliment to henry in consideration of that prince's passing the sea that he might be present at the interview wolsey to whom both kings had entrusted the regulation of the ceremonial contrived this circumstance in order to do honour to his master the nobility both of france and england here displayed their magnificence with such emulation and profuse expense as procured to the place of interview the name of the field of the cloth of gold the two monarchs after saluting each other in the most cordial manner retired into a tent which had been erected on purpose and they held a secret conference together henry here proposed to make some amendments on the articles of their former alliance and he began to read the treaty i henry king these were the first words and he stopped a moment he subjoined only the words of england without adding france the usual style of the english monarchs francis remarked this delicacy and expressed by a smile his approbation of it he took an opportunity soon after of paying a compliment to henry of a more flattering nature that generous prince full of honour himself and incapable of distrusting others was shocked at all the precautions which were observed whenever he had an interview with the english monarch the number of their guards and attendants was carefully reckoned on both sides every step was scrupulously measured and adjusted and if the two kings intended to pay a visit to the queens they departed from their respective quarters at the same instant which was marked by the firing of a culverin they passed each other in the middle point between the places and the moment that henry entered ardres francis put himself into the hands of the english at Guisnes. in order to break off this tedious ceremonial which contained so many dishonourable implications francis one day took with him two gentlemen and a page and rode directly into Guisnes the guards were surprised at the presence of the monarch who called aloud to them you are all my prisoners carry me to your master henry was equally astonished at the appearance of francis and taking him in his arms my brother said he you have here played me the most agreeable trick in the world and have showed me the full confidence i may place in you i surrender myself your prisoner from this moment he took from his neck a collar of pearls worth fifteen thousand angles and putting it about francis's begged him to wear it for the sake of his prisoner francis agreed 
but on condition that henry should wear a bracelet of which he made him a present and which was double in value to the collar the king went next day to ardres without guards or attendants and confidence being now fully established between the monarchs they employed the rest of the time entirely in tournaments and festivals a defiance had been sent by the two kings to each other's court and through all the chief cities in europe importing that henry and francis with fourteen aides would be ready in the plains of picardy to answer all comers that were gentlemen at tilt tournament and barriers the monarchs in order to fulfil this challenge advanced into the field on horseback francis surrounded with henry's guards and henry with those of francis they were gorgeously apparelled and were both of them the most comely personages of their age as well as the most expert in every military exercise they carried away the prize at all trials in those rough and dangerous pastimes and several horses and riders were overthrown by their vigour and dexterity the ladies were the judges in these feats of chivalry and put an end to the rencontre whenever they judged it expedient henry erected a spacious house of wood and canvas which had been framed in london and he there feasted the french monarch he had placed a motto on this fabric under the figure of an english archer embroidered on it cui adhiro priest he prevails whom i favour expressing his own situation as holding in his hands the balance of power among the potentates of europe in these entertainments more than in any serious business did the two kings pass their time till their departure henry paid then a visit to the emperor and margaret of savoy at gravelines and engaged them to go along with him to calais and pass some days in that fortress the artful and politic charles here completed the impression which he had begun to make on henry and his favourite and effaced all the friendship to which the frank and generous nature of francis had given birth as the house of austria began sensibly to take the ascendant over the french monarchy the interests of england required that some support should be given to the latter and above all that any important wars should be prevented which might bestow on either of them a decisive superiority over the other but the jealousy of the english against france has usually prevented a cordial union between those nations and charles sensible of this hereditary animosity and desirous further to flatter henry's vanity had made him an offer an offer in which francis was afterwards obliged to concur that he should be entirely arbiter in any dispute or difference that might arise between the monarchs but the masterpiece of charles's politics was the securing of wolsey in his interests by very important services and still higher promises he renewed assurances of assisting him in obtaining the papacy 
and he put him in present possession of the revenues belonging to the sees of Badajoz and Palinea in Castile. The acquisitions of Wolsey were now become so exorbitant that, joined to the pensions from foreign powers which Henry allowed him to possess, his revenues were computed nearly to equal those which belonged to the crown itself, and he spent them with a magnificence, or rather an ostentation, which gave general offence to the people, and even lessened his master in the eyes of all foreign nations. The violent personal emulation and political jealousy which had taken place between the emperor and the French king soon broke out in hostilities. But while these ambitious and warlike princes were acting against each other in almost every part of Europe, they still made professions of the strongest desire of peace, and both of them incessantly carried their complaints to Henry as to the umpire between them. The king, who pretended to be neutral, engaged them to send their ambassadors to Calais, there to negotiate a peace under the mediation of Wolsey and the Pope's nuncio. The emperor was well apprised of the partiality of these mediators, and his demands in the conference were so unreasonable as plainly proved him conscious of the advantage. He required the restitution of Burgundy, a province which many years before had been ceded to France by treaty, and which, if in his possession, would have given him entrance into the heart of that kingdom, and he demanded to be freed from the homage which his ancestors had always done for Flanders and Artois, and which he himself had, by the Treaty of Noyon, engaged to renew. On Francis's rejecting these terms, the Congress of Calais broke up, and Wolsey soon after took a journey to Bruges, where he met with the emperor. He was received with the same state, magnificence, and respect as if he had been the king of England himself, and he concluded, in his master's name, an offensive alliance with the pope and the emperor against France. He stipulated that England should next summer invade that kingdom with forty thousand men, and he betrothed to Charles the Princess Mary, the king's only child, who had now some prospect of inheriting the crown. This extravagant alliance, which was prejudicial to the interests, and might have proved fatal to the liberty and independence of the kingdom, was the result of the humours and prejudices of the king, and the private views and expectations of the cardinal. The people saw every day new instances of the uncontrolled authority of this minister. The Duke of Buckingham, constable of England, the first nobleman both for family and fortune in the kingdom, had imprudently given disgust to the cardinal, and it was not long before he found reason to repent of his indiscretion. He seems to have been a man full of levity and rash projects, and, being infatuated with judicial astrology, he entertained a commerce with one Hopkins, a Carthusian friar, 
who encouraged him in the notion of his mounting one day the throne of England. He was descended by a female from the Duke of Gloucester, youngest son of Edward III, and though his claim to the crown was thereby very remote, he had been so unguarded as to let fall some expressions as if he thought himself best entitled, in case the king should die without issue, to possess the royal dignity. He had not even abstained from threats against the king's life, and had provided himself with arms which he intended to employ in case a favorable opportunity should offer. He was brought to a trial, and the Duke of Norfolk, whose son, the Earl of Surrey, had married Buckingham's daughter, was created Lord Steward in order to preside at this solemn procedure. The jury consisted of a duke, a marquis, seven earls, and twelve barons, and they gave their verdict against Buckingham, which was soon after carried into execution. There is no reason to think the sentence unjust, but as Buckingham's crimes seemed to proceed more from indiscretion than deliberate malice, the people who loved him expected that the king would grant him a pardon, and imputed their disappointment to the animosity and revenge of the cardinal. The king's own jealousy, however, of all persons allied to the crown, was, notwithstanding his undoubted title, very remarkable during the whole course of his reign, and was alone sufficient to render him implacable against Buckingham. The office of constable, which this nobleman inherited from the Bohuns, earls of Hereford, was forfeited, and was never after revived in England. End of section 13, chapter 28, part 2. Recording by Cynthia Moyer.